Welcome to Samson Stronger, a podcast series featuring stories of resilience from male survivors of childhood sexual abuse and their allies. In some parts, it is heavy going, so if you're not in the space to listen right now, switch to something lighter. But do come back. We learn a great deal about surviving and growing stronger than your past from survivors. If what you hear stirs up strong feelings, know that you can contact Samson at samson.org.au or on 1-800-472-676, or give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14. Welcome back for the second half of our two-part episode, Better Get a Lawyer, Son, about the real-life experiences of male survivors of child sexual abuse pursuing justice through the legal system. In this episode, Adam and Jared will share their stories, and we'll hear more reflections from former Royal Commissioner Robert Fitzgerald, Professor Rita Shackle, and Professor Patrick O'Leary. Adam was sexually abused when he was seven and eight years old by two older boys, and then by a Catholic priest when he was 13 and 14. Later, in his adult years, Adam reported the abuses to the police. The two older boys pleaded guilty, but the priest did not. In a criminal matter, the case is the Crown, that is the government, versus the accused, and the victim becomes a witness, perhaps one of several witnesses, in the Crown's case. As part of this process, the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions will assign a Crown Prosecutor to run the case. Here's Adam. My first Crown Prosecutor was amazing. Uh, I built a very good rapport with her very quickly. Um, She was very comforting. She was very warm. She was super authentic. Um, She loved what she did as her occupation. But for the other case against the Catholic priest, who had pleaded not guilty, Adam had to give evidence from the witness box and was cross-examined by the priest's barrister. This time, public prosecutions assigned a different Crown Prosecutor to the case. Going on to my, to my second perpetrator, um, being in the box was the most fucking brutal time of my life. If I thought I was a man um, before going through that trial, I was fucking kidding myself because I had no idea. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, it shaped me for who I am today. It, uh, it made me who I am today. Uh, it made me uh, much more resilient, without a doubt. I had my the first initial meeting with uh, this this uh, the, the crown prosecutor from the DPP in Newcastle. I'll never forget the day he turned up in his um, his sweat jacket. I knew he was going to Fiji on a family holiday. It was the most frustrating meeting that I've ever attended. Um, he wasn't present. He didn't he didn't choose to be there. He was. I think he was out of his depth. He basically came came to tell me that day that he wasn't going to run my case. I don't believe, I, I, I was made to feel like he didn't believe me that I was lying. I was absolutely fucking devastated. Um, I'll never forget that for as long as I live. When the complexity of the system led to confusion and communication issues, Adam turned to Samson for support. Craig um, came in on, uh, from Samson uh, online. I think there was seven or eight. Um, there was eight individuals in this one meeting after after this gentleman got back from the holidays, and, and we, uh, yeah, we, uh, we we got to the conclusion that he was going to run the case. But that that itself was a huge disappointment around the, the DPP and how we were treated. And Craig's been my rock; he's been there for me umpteen times. You know what I mean? And I've got some some great friends, and, and I've, I've made some great mates um, throughout Samson. What it learned, what it, what it was for me, that I, the biggest thing I took away from it, is it's a lonely old walk if you uh, if you don't have people around you, um, and even when you do have people around you, I found I found it to be a lonely old walk. It's uh, it's hard, it's brutal. You know, in your own heart, you've done nothing wrong, and then you're basically being accused of of uh, it's like you're you're, you're the uh, 
the, the, the guilty participant in the whole in the whole exercise. So, um, so I believe the, the criminal justice system uh, needs an overhaul by 110. percent You know what I mean? There's a strong possibility that the legal system in its current form is not actually capable of delivering a real sense of justice to survivors of sexual violence. Experts have started to explore other ways of restoring the balance in these cases. One of the things we do know is that revenge doesn't work. Professor Patrick O'Leary has interviewed male survivors about their anger and desire for retribution. And uh, as one bloke I remember interviewing um, said, yeah, I'm bloody angry for a bloody good reason. And that's exactly right. But what do you do with that anger? And where does that take you when you've got a very restrictive idea about masculinity? Where, where the idea of masculinity sometimes in that restrictive sense is, if someone does something to me, I need to do something to them. That that sort of revenge idea. And, you know, I think it's easy to buy into that. And, and often I've heard, you know, male survivors talk, oh, well, you know, I wish I could have, you know, fought back. Or some men I've talked to talk about the, you know, the, the fantasy of revenge, which, you know, I think is really an important conversation to have with men. Quite a number of years I interviewed a number of men uh, in Australia that had been responsible for murdering their perpetrator of sexual abuse and unanimously those men regretted doing that. They regretted doing that because they felt that locked their whole identity into around the sexual abuse and in a way let the perpetrator off the hook. They were left being held accountable for everything and the perpetrators out of the picture. They were very clear of their advice to other men that this wasn't something useful. But they're really clear to advice to professionals that when men express some sense of revenge, it, it's an important conversation. It's an important conversation to unpack. And a couple of those men had tried to have a conversation with a social worker or a psychologist and largely been um, dismissed, you know, or you wouldn't do that or, you know, that would be a silly idea. We shut down the conversation. That may have been a conversation that could have been quite transformative for them making sense of their anger, their sense of revenge. Because it's, it's okay to feel some revenge. <laughs> it's okay to feel some uh, sense of wanting justice but it's an important conversation to have. So I think, you know, I, I hadn't thought about that, those group of men that I'd interviewed um, many years ago who, who had, uh, I'd interviewed in jail and, you know, some were, had been in prison for, you know, more than 20 years, you know, and that double edge of justice for them was, was immense. And they, they were so clear about that act uh, is, is not the act of a good person and it was not congruent to who they wanted to be. Law professor Rita Shackle. Child sexual abuse is a crime, but the criminal justice system with all of its failings and deficiencies may not be able to adequately provide the different types of justice that victims and survivors may be seeking. And so it is important that we look at other ways to pursue justice for victims and survivors. And as I'm saying this, I guess I'm also reflecting on, on the fact that we need to understand what 
justice means for for victims. Justice means different things to different people. One size doesn't fit all. And so we need to find ways of being responsive to a range of different needs, a range of different justice needs for for different people. For some people, uh, criminal justice will serve their justice needs. For other uh, victims and, and survivors, they may need more of those uh, safe spaces that we've been talking about where they can tell their stories, they can share their experiences, um, they can choose who to share those experiences with and they can also choose different ways in which perpetrators are held accountable for their actions without it being purely limited uh, to a criminal justice context or or outcome. The Royal Commission was able in in some respects to to move towards a greater culture or expectation of accountability. I'm not sure that that was entirely achieved. I think we still have a very long uh, way to go in terms of uh, accountability and maybe civil redress is a more effective channel for, for that accountability to be attained. Civil redress means seeking compensation privately through the court system. There's also a national redress scheme, which can be accessed by people who are sexually abused as children, specifically in Australian institutions. We'll go into detail about that in our episode titled Respect. In terms of the criminal justice uh, system, I think the challenges we, we were talking about previously mean that accountability often isn't attained um, or isn't isn't achieved because if a case is started and doesn't end up um, with a finding of, of guilty, which we know only occurs in a very small number of, of cases, many cases fall out of the system way before it ev- before they even get to court and certainly before a conviction is rendered, if indeed a, ki- a conviction is rendered at all. So that undermines uh, accountability really because offenders then are not held accountable at all. And I think that is problematic for victims and survivors. And that's why the justice system may not be the right avenue for justice to be pursued because an outcome that does not involve conviction doesn't mean that the abuse didn't occur. But often that's how it's understood. And that's, I think, devastating for victims and survivors. In previous episodes, we've heard from Jared, whose experience with the legal system formed a big part of his recovery from his childhood abuse. Here's Jared. He's going to walk us through what that was like. And so I think, you know, I did disclose at 17, but that wasn't an overnight process. I didn't really actually start dealing with the abuse until I'd had my day in court. And 
I'd cried in counseling plenty of times but it was because a girlfriend dumped me or I'd broken up with somebody and hurt them or I couldn't deal with X, Y, and Z. And I don't know, a week or two after my court case, I was a child on the floor in a ball, just losing my shit. And, you know, I remember my, I remember my counselor getting down there on the floor next to me and resting her hand on my shoulder and saying, they're there. And I, it sounds patronising, but it wasn't like it was all she could do. She couldn't say anything else. She couldn't, there was no counselling. She just had to, to let me dissolve. And then as we started resolving things, finally I could, I could delve into what had happened. For whatever reason it was, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the emotional side of it until I dealt with the legal. And I don't really know why that is, but it opened the door for me. And so I'd been in counselling 10 years, but the steps I made between 27 and 30 were, it was like that was all of the steps I ever needed to make. And I don't, yeah, I guess I've always been someone who's got a strong sense of fairness or justice. I'm bothered by injustice. And at about 21, I just took a sick day off work and I didn't tell anybody. And I, um, I drove to Parramatta from the Sutherland Shire because we'd, we'd moved sort of that distance. Um, and I, I kind of registered that I should go to the police station in the area where it happened, although maybe I didn't need to looking back at, at it. But at the time, that's what I thought I had to do. Um, and I remember that day so distinctly because I, I was like incredibly anxious and I had this little sports car that I like loved to death. And I think I cut somebody off. I was, you know, probably pretty erratic in my driving and I actually had this like road rage incident on the way to, to the police station where a guy like got out and punched my car and everything. But I, I just took myself off over to the police station and yeah, and, and reported it. I, I, might, I might have made a couple of phone calls beforehand kind of sussing out what I should do without giving away who I was or anything like that. So it was, it was sort of about four years between when I, you know, first disclosed and, and I say disclosed, not confessed, because there's a, it's a, a very important distinction there, what had happened to me and then went to the police. And I don't really, again, I don't really know why. I think I just had a strong sense that I needed needed him to answer for it. And so I did that. It wasn't, again, it was a process. You know, if, it, if I think about it, there's already two blocks there of three or four years between some realization and disclosure and then disclosure and reporting. And no one, no one pushed me or I'm not even sure if somebody had suggested reporting it. I think at the time my parents, they weren't worried about that. They were just worried about me, you know, getting the help I needed and my psychologist was worried about keeping me alive and I you know I did it off my own back the first time I went I didn't actually make a statement I just reported it and it was a while before that was followed up and then I think I made another kind of smaller statement which allowed them to start uh, investigating and it wasn't until you know a little while after that that I did a couple of big you know big sessions and a couple over a few, over a few days, not whole days, but a number of sessions later on actually going into detail and, you know, making, I guess, you know, making statements that were used in court. And I didn't have any police who dealt with things in a negative way. 
when I was making the first report and the first statement before it was sort of an investigation, I I talked to whoever was available or whoever followed me up. But once once it became something, uh, it was consistent, which was great as well. It was not a million different people. He was my one point of contact, and and until it went from the the hands of the police to the DPP, and then you know then there was the contact from the DPP as well. But that was only at the, you know only in that that period before it actually went to court. But to to get it to court, the the threshold was quite high. So the police had done their investigation and got it so far, but the DPP kind of you know did the second round and dug deeper and asked more questions and and really pushed, which could have been traumatic because I think up to that point the statement was all about me. I mean, obviously I was asked detailed questions, but it was it was kind of drawn out of me, whereas the DPP, you know, had to be a bit more like, we need this, do you remember this? What's going on? Like what was happening with this? Like it was more pointed, it was more direct, which, you know, reality is, was a preparation also for, for court. Like they were asking the questions to get it there, but that was also how it was going to be when I got to court. You know, I, I had a mental breakdown in my final year. I couldn't, the mental load of it, I was, I was working full time. I was sneaking off, not telling anybody about these, you know, police visits that I was making that were sporadic because they were secretive. And so they would only happen when I found time for them and when I made contact really, which was nice to have that control. So the court case was, yeah, interesting is the wrong word, but I'm going to say interesting because I don't have... I don't have another word for it. <laughs> I guess it's interesting because there's this whole package of things that happened that were related to it. You know, my parents were there. Uh, my mum's sister came. You know, and my mum had to had to front up. She had to go to the police and make statements as well, and she had to give evidence in court. My siblings came, uh, not every day, and I think I was kind of glad they didn't they didn't come every day. But I think as a family, that kind of thing really. You know, we, we pulled together and I remember at the beginning of the week, um, there was, we, you'd walk out of the elevators and there was two courtrooms, which was sort of the doors were next to each elevator, two elevators, big foyer, two courtrooms, which were either side of the elevators. And then on the other side of the courtrooms at the end of the foyer, you know, we're six or seven stories up at the courthouse, you know, there were big panoramic windows and then little conference rooms off to the side of the foyer. I remember the first time I saw the perpetrator and his family and I recognized him, um, you know, they came out of the lift and I recognized him and it was so confronting, so confronting. And, you know, they, they would have recognized us. His, you know, his parents knew my parents, they were neighbors. They weren't friends. They didn't spend time with each other, but they, you know, talked over the back fence as you do. But I, um, I was so intimidated by their family that we would go and hide in a little, the little conference room down the end each day before the court was in session, before people were allowed in. And obviously I wasn't allowed in until I gave my testimony anyway and neither was mum. And so often it would just be me and mum out there or, you know, my dad or my sister-in-law or my sister or my brother might wait out there with us while everyone else was in the courtroom. When I gave my testimony, only, the pers- only my, su- my support person was in there. I didn't really want my parents or my siblings to have to hear the graphic detail. I think I didn't want them to hear it either. You know, probably at the time it was a little bit out of shame that I didn't want them to hear. 
but also I knew it would be horrendous for them to hear it and I didn't want them to hear it. I, I don't think that my mum or my dad should have to endure that detail. I know that had I asked for them to be in there, they would have, but I don't think it's fair to them or my siblings to do that. I mean, for me, and I, I, I wouldn't say that someone shouldn't have their parents in there if that's what they wanted. I, I don't mean that as a judgment call, but for me, it didn't seem fair to ask them to do that. But I had a I had a support person in there and the court cleared everyone out. So it was the perpetrator, his legal team, you know, the state's legal team, my support person, the judge and the jury. There was no one else in there. They, they cleared the courtroom when I gave evidence. Not when my mum gave evidence but or anyone else, but when I gave evidence, the courtroom was clear, which was also great because I could look at the lawyer from the state. I could look at his lawyer if he asked me questions. Um, and when I answered, I normally answered to my support person. <laughs> you know, I, I looked at him and he would look me in the eye and I would answer. So it was a very, very safe environment. Um, I was definitely protected, at least by the system. Uh, the Obviously, it was difficult being cross-examined. I, I, you can't sugarcoat that. And um, for some reason... In that legal framework, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I coped with talking about it. It was like I could separate it from myself, even though I knew I was talking about myself. And then I did that in in the court in the courtroom, and I, you know, I was I was able to face down the the lawyer from the from his defence. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm probably fortunate in that I'd had a few years of university presentations under my belt. I was used to speaking in front of people. I was used to being nervous speaking in front of people. You know, my dad's a pastor, and so I've grown up, you know, around public speaking. And but it's not like public speaking. It's very, very different, and it's very, very personal. But I had some sort of an awareness of, of an ability to 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 speak in front of people. But it was difficult. It was very difficult. I'll skip ahead to the final day. On the final day, after walking out of the courtroom, the role switched. I sat down at the end of the foyer. We walked out first and then they walked out second, family. And I sat and I stared at them. And my mum said, oh, they're, you know, they're there. Do you want to go in this little conference room? And I was like, no, they can go. They can run away. And for me, the course of that week, I, something had shifted and I knew that he knew he was guilty um, and I knew that his family knew and it was like the last the last little chink of it not being my fault, it not being my problem, it not being me had somehow through that process fallen into place and and he did, he, you know, I'll spoil it, spoiler, he, he got off. Um, it was a hung jury. He wasn't convicted but he wasn't not convicted which is actually – from what I know, a pretty good outcome. So many people are found not guilty. It was a hung jury. And so when I was staring them down, I was staring him down and they left, they went and hid in a little conference room and it's their problem. Now it's his family's problem. It's his problem. And it's not mine and they've got to deal with it. And that was, I just remember for the, you know, first time in my life, I think I felt powerful actually. It was such a good feeling to, to stare him down, you know, and I could, I could walk past him on the street with no fear now. And as we left the courtroom, his um, wife uh, stood up and, and yelled at me, go to hell. Like, 
you know, none of his family, you know, believed, believed me, none of, none of his side believed me. Although to be fair, I think when she had such a strong reaction and when they ran away to that little side room, I firmly believe that that, that transfer of shame and her anger, I think she had a choice. She could be, she could believe me, which meant that she'd married a pedophile because I was lying about her husband. And I think for self-protection or whatever it was, she, she, you know, she chose not to, and her, his family chose to, to believe him as well. And I understand that you don't want to see the worst in, in your, your son or your spouse. Commissioner Robert Fitzgerald. Child sexual abuse is the only crime in which nobody changes their mind despite the evidence. Those that believed that he was he could never do any wrong used the word impossible, 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 and they never vary. And those that think he was absolutely guilty never vary. And it doesn't matter what trials, what court cases, what's written, nobody changes their mind, with the exception of those that weren't sure. And it's the only crime that I know like that. The problem is not that. You can't change how people perceive these things. You cannot. And evidence doesn't do it, let me tell you. Evidence doesn't do it. But there are four responses uh, that happen when you, when you, when a person that you know, a family member, a work colleague, uh, somebody else that you know, um, is accused of child sexual abuse. The first is you will say, it is impossible. I know that person. He's a good man. He's the most popular teacher. He couldn't possibly have ever done it. I've lived with him. I trained with him. Could not do it. Second one is, um, I'm not sure about that, but it's the victim. She or he is always making up things, always, you know, causing troubles, always, you know, playing around and mucking around with older boys or whatever it might be. Third group says, uh, I'm genuinely not sure, you know, and they're a small group. And the last group says, I always thought there was something funny about that person and I think he's as guilty as hell. So people that had been groomed by the perpetrator who were the person to whom the child or, a, or a, a, an adult came back to report um, were so com- convinced that the person couldn't have done it, it affected everything from that moment on, including the victimisation of the child again. And so what we're doing now is saying, I can't change your opinion. I can't tell you to think differently. I can't give you enough evidence for you to think differently. What I can say to you is, despite all that, you let these processes follow through. You provide the support to the child. You do these things and you don't do other things. And that way you'll get to a much better outcome. And that's totally different to where we were 20 or 30 years ago. Um, And so I think we we have now learnt better strategies the one thing I don't think you can do is change people's opinions. Um, I think when they know the person that's been accused, uh, but it is the most extraordinary crime where people's views don't change. And if you look at a high-profile person in the media, uh, you will see it exactly play out just like I've said. He couldn't possibly have done it. It's impossible. It's the victim. They're making it up. I'm not sure. I think he's as guilty as sin. And three appeals later, nobody's changed their mind. I think, however, there has been great progress and there will continue to be progress going forward. Uh, But it's just a tough course. And I still am in touch with some people uh, where their sons and daughters um, are victims and are parts of criminal justice process. And it is just uh, almost tragic to watch the pain and suffering. Um, And it's very hard to to say to somebody, you should go through this process. What has changed, but I want to make this point, I said this to many people in the private sessions, the fact that the police now investigate and go and knock on the door of the alleged perpetrator is a victory. 
is a big victory. It's a huge victory. Even because finally you say to that person, we know what you did. The police go to the door where they knock on the door and they say to that man, to his face, we know what you did. That is so remarkable compared to what would have happened to a young person or a person 30, 40 years ago. So people would say, well, you, you know, these are low, low victories. No, they're not. They're big victories because previously they would have lived their whole life having done terrible things and never have been confronted by anybody. Now they are. That's a big step. If they get to court, terrific. And if we do start to see conviction rates increase, uh, that will be um, a very significant. Uh, but I just want to make the point, the adversarial system is, is a tough system. And really, all the changes in the world won't make it much uh, less tough going forward. Um, and part of that is because we, we do have a system that basically says you are innocent until proven guilty. And that's a high threshold. It's beyond reasonable doubt. It's not balance of probabilities. It's not like redress schemes. It's not like civil court matters. It's beyond reasonable doubt. And when you've got a child, an adult, and the abuse took place 30 years ago or 20 years ago, that's a very high threshold. Um, and the court system will never change that particular threshold. So it's always going to be tough. But I just say to every man and woman who's been abused, who's had the courage to go through that process and is still standing at the other end, we owe you an enormous debt of gratitude and always will and uh, we will never remember what, uh, forget what you've done in doing that. Um, and for future victims, um, you know, I think it'll be a slightly easier road, but it'll still be tough. It's like an oil well, your trauma, as much as I've dealt with it, you know, and I don't see my counsellor regularly anymore, but the last session I did, you know, ostensibly to talk about going through the relationship breakdown ended up with me talking about what happened when I was a child. And so there's this, I recognise that there's, the trauma sits like a bit of a well. But the beautiful thing about the court case and then that, that sort of, I would say, that three-year period between 27 and 30 afterwards is that I capped that well. It wasn't, up to that point, it was like this ocean that was raging inside of me that I couldn't control and would come out in unpredictable ways and the emotion of it would destroy relationships and I would, all my coping mechanisms were super unhealthy. But when I went through that three years following the court case and I, I kind of put the cap on it, it wasn't that the coping mechanism stopped straight away, but I was able to actually go, ugh. And, and put this cap on things and know what things were and know how to deal with emotion. And, you know, I, I yeah, it, it changed everything. And, and for me, and it won't be like this for everybody, I know that, but for me, the key was that legal avenue. Samson is the only specialist charity in Australia dedicated to helping all male survivors of child sexual abuse and their families. Each year, Samson provides free services to hundreds of male survivors and their supporters. Samson believes that male survivors of child sexual abuse can recover and thrive. Help him believe. Donate today. Visit samson.org.au. That's S-A-M-S-N.org.au. Remember to rate and share this online because it helps others, especially survivors, to find it. Stronger was created for Survivors and Mates Support Network entirely remotely during the pandemic of 2020 and 21. 
It was produced and directed by me, Felicity Blake of The Dove Media, with Julie Blythe of Samson. Our executive producer is Craig Hughes-Cashmore. Interview help from Les Spencer and Shane Greentree. Audio editing by Dion Brooks. Transcript assistance from Dr Anna Camarelli and Melanie Tashanay-King. A big thank you to our co-host and Samson ambassador, Rob Carlton. Very special thanks to all 32 of our participants. Your insights make others stronger. Stronger.